If you want to turn, we'll be in Ephesians 6, teaching on spiritual warfare. It began last week. So Ephesians chapter 6, and we're just going to read verses 10 through 13 today. So Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And let's pray. Father, we just thank you once again for this time to look at your word and have your spirit speak to us through your word. And we just ask you to open our eyes and that we can see somewhat how the wiles of the devil operate so that we're not unaware of his devices and his schemes against us, that we can stand against him in your strength and your power. And I just thank you that you'll do that for us here today in Jesus' name. So, you know, when you announce that you're going to teach on spiritual warfare, you know, most people get excited because they think you're going to get into all this stuff about the occult and supernatural manifestations of the devil. And that's part of it, and we will talk about that. But that's just one aspect of spiritual warfare and the way the devil attacks. Because I think there's another more subtle and serious attack that he makes on Christians to undermine our walk with God. And it's more of his main goal and purpose, and that is to get us off the path of following our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to look at some of those ways that he does that today. But first, I'd like to ask you a question. So we're talking about spiritual warfare, and it's a battle, a wrestling match, combat, and it is a fight. All of those things, isn't it? So my question I want to ask is, whose battle is it? Is this our own personal battle that we're involved in when we talk about spiritual warfare? Did we start the fight, and did we choose the weapons? I believe the answer to that is found in the Old Testament and throughout all the Bible, but specifically in 2 Chronicles 20, because without turning there, we have the story where Jehoshaphat is king, and he's faced with the Moabites, the Ammonites, and a host of others are gathered together, a great multitude, and they are going to attack the little land of Judah. They don't have any great army, and Jehoshaphat goes to God and asks him, he says, I don't know what to do. And he has a prayer that he prays before the Lord, and he says in part of that prayer, he says, you have brought us into this land, O Lord. You're the one that has brought us there, and now these people are attacking us. And here's what he was told in answer to that through a prophet. Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. And here's what I want to get to. I ask, whose battle is this? And the prophet said, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is the Lord's. Now, Jehoshaphat, though, he had to go out. He had to assemble all the people, and they went forth to meet the men of Ammon and Moab. And they are called an army. But the battle was the Lord's, right? He chose the weapons. And what was the weapons of that particular battle? Paul taught on it that night or talked about it, right? And what was it? It was praise. 
And no man would have thought that one up as a weapon to face this enemy. I mean, you're facing a real army, a multitude with swords and spears, and they are going to do you real physical damage. And yet God says the weapon in that battle is what? It's praise. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. And yet he says, if you believe God's word, the prophet told him, you'll prosper. And they went forth, that army went forth believing God, singing his praises. And what were they doing and doing that? They are trusting in his mighty power that it would act on their behalf because that is all they had. Wasn't it? They're trusting his mighty power. And God did what? He routed that enemy supernaturally. What I'm trying to say here is the attack on God's people. When God's people are in attack, it's an attack on God and his honor. It is his battle. It's not some individual skirmish we're getting in on our own, some personal vendetta. It is his battle. And we need to remember that. And that should be an encouragement to us all. The battle is not ours, but it is the Lord's. His glory and honor are at stake. We are his people. And so when the enemy comes at us, he is attacking us because we are God's people. That's why he wants to destroy us. That's why he has all these wiles and schemes to keep us from being God's people and to get us out of his kingdom, if he could. Right? So there's two kingdoms in conflict here. That's what this war is all about. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And just like soldiers of an army, you aren't going out when you're in an army and having personal fights with the enemy, are you? You're not having personal fights, but you're fighting on the behalf of a government or a general. You're supplied with a uniform, you're given armor, you're given weapons. And so we fight for the kingdom of God and righteousness. That's whose army we're enlisted in. The kingdom of God and righteousness is who we have. And we have a captain, or if you want to say a general, but the Bible calls him a captain who is leading us, who is leading this great army. It's the same one who led Israel in the days of Joshua. That's who led Israel into that land. He's called the captain of the Lord's host in Joshua 5.15. And our Lord Jesus Christ is called the captain of our salvation in Hebrews 2.10. And so as our captain, God has done what? This is what we're looking at. He has supplied us with his armor to fight his battle. And he promises to give us his mighty power, supplying us everything we need. And we're not in this fight alone, even though sometimes when you're in the midst of a struggle or a trial, it really seems that way, doesn't it? It seems like you're fighting all alone. But listen, the power of his might isn't just the power of the Holy Spirit in us, even though that is sufficient, right? But it also includes the mighty host of heaven. Doesn't it say in Psalm 91, he gives his angels charge concerning us? That is no small thing. We are not in this by ourselves. And in 2 Kings 6, we haven't talked about this story for a while, but the king of Syria, he sent in a, this huge multitude, an army that surrounded the city of Dothan. He sent this multitude in there to get how many people? Two. Two people, Elisha and his servant. And, but when his servant, Elisha's servant, sees this multitude surrounding that city and know that they are coming there to do them harm, he is terrified. And it says, he cries out, alas, 
Master, what are we going to do? He is scared. It's just the two of us, and we are grossly outnumbered and doomed. That's what he thought. Like I said, sometimes trials seem that way, don't they? It's just me and my wife sitting here against this problem that's coming at night. <laughs> and it seems like a multitude's attacking you, something way bigger than you. And it seems like you're alone. But Elijah told that servant, he says, man, your vision just isn't really good. Don't you see them? He says, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And then he prayed a prayer. He said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. So Elisha could see in the spirit something that this man couldn't see. And it said that as a result of that prayer, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And it says, behold. All he saw before was this multitude of these Syrians coming to kill him. And it says, behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. They were there. They're there with us. We have help with us when we're in serious trials. <laughs> we're not left alone. An invisible but a mighty host of angels were sent to deliver two people. That's how much God cares for his people from physical danger. It looked like it was going to be a physical battle, didn't it? But there were spirits in that army in Syria motivating them. And God says, you're not alone fighting them. i got a spiritual host that can fight against them. It's a spiritual battle. So we need to remember, I want to say, first of all, the battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. We are not alone. And he is going to send to us when we're in a trial and we're trusting him. We may not always sense it, feel it, but we have to trust that it's there. Whether he opens our eyes to see them or not, that help is there. He is there to help us. He'll send enough forces to defeat the enemies that are coming at us. And that should give us great comfort. It really should. So, we're back here to Ephesians 6, where he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. So he's given us that power and that armor for a purpose. And that is what that that is in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's the purpose of the armor and the power. We got somebody coming after us. The wiles, the schemes, the subtlety, the craftiness. The word actually wiles is where we get our word method from. In the Greek, it's methodeo. So we're up against a living being, and this is what we tend to forget. We are up, though, the wiles of the devil, a living being that before his fall was unparalleled in the universe, all of God's creation. The devil before his fall was unparalleled in power, wisdom, and beauty except for God himself. Second to none. So I didn't spend a lot of time, and I'm not going through the fall of the devil. We've had teaching on that in not that long ago, I don't think. But in Ezekiel 28, 12, though, listen to what God himself said about the devil. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And that's what God says about the devil before he fell. 
full of perfection, the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. So we can't take that lightly, that our enemy is him, even if he is fallen, even if he has been defeated at the cross. Because this is the one, this living being, full of wisdom and beauty that is coming to deceive us and to trip us up and cause us to be led astray to doom. That is the being. So how smart is the devil? You take Edison, <laughs> Einstein, the greatest minds of this earth, and you put them all together, all at one time in one big brain, and they would be like a dumb ox compared to him. That's how smart he really is. He's supernaturally smart, a genius. And like I said, he's coming up with schemes like Wile E. Coyote. He never gets tired of trying something new, but he knows what has worked for thousands of years. He'll do that. And he's brilliant. So, you know, people talk about some guy on TV and it's like, oh, yeah, this man's brilliant. Oh, the most brilliant person anybody will talk about is nothing compared to the devil. So what I'm going to say is one of the main things, and this is what I want to talk about, that the devil comes at us with with his brilliant schemes. And this is the point today is he wants to get us off the cross. He's coming after the cross life of the Christian. And so he is going to do everything in his power to keep us from denying ourselves, picking up our crosses daily, and following Jesus. He's the best at convincing us that we do not need to crucify our flesh through the Spirit, but that we can give ourselves over to the flesh in all the little ways he has. All of us do that every day, tries to. We can give ourselves over to the flesh and still somehow be right with God. Oh, God wants you to enjoy the abundant life, to be happy, and to be ministered to, not to be a minister. So if you would, put something there in Ephesians and turn over to Matthew 16. This is a familiar portion of Scripture, beginning in verse 21. Matthew 16, 21, and... Matthew writes, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But Jesus turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, you are an offense unto me. For you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So Jesus' friend Peter had just been given and declared a divine revelation. The Spirit of God opened his understanding, and he could see that Jesus Christ was God, the Son of God, the promised Messiah. And that doesn't happen to everybody. That was a special thing there. A heart that can be open to see Jesus for who he is 
Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that, but my Father through the Holy Spirit did. That is a special thing, isn't it? And that's what happened. But he goes from the Holy Spirit and just that quick switches over to another spirit operating through him, right? Through his understanding. The devil. And so when the Lord explains the necessity of the cross and his death, Peter, now inspired by the devil, begins, it says, to rebuke Jesus. I mean... <laughs> Could you imagine rebuking Jesus? I mean, that's a little bit hard to imagine, isn't it? But that's Peter. That's what he would do. And what was he saying? Far be it from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now, those words were coming out of Peter's mouth and probably sounded like his voice, but those words were inspired by another spirit. Coming out of him right now is a doctrine of a demon. You don't have to go to the cross, Lord. You don't have to suffer. Oh, no, Lord, Peter was probably telling him, I just love and care about you too much to see this happen to you. This can't happen to you. You go to that cross and die. How are you going to overthrow Rome and bring in your everlasting kingdom? How are you going to be around to let the oppressed go free like we've seen you be doing? Where are all these blessings and promises to Israel? How are they going to be fulfilled? Because they didn't understand about the cross and the devil speaking through him. But those are subtle words. Wily words, worldly words, spoken to the Son of God. Now, how easy is that going to be? Jesus had just got through commending him that God, through the Holy Spirit, had given him this revelation and had given him this confession, and he has to turn right around now and tell his friend, uh-uh, that's the devil speaking through you. I don't think that was probably all that easy for him. He said, what? Those words, now you're talking to me, Peter, my friend, are a stumbling block to me. You're trying to trip me up and keep me from the cross. And listen, that is what the devil has thoroughly convinced the rest of mankind. Don't give up your life for God. And so if it worked on the rest of mankind, why wouldn't it work on the Lord Jesus Christ? And he tells Peter, you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. That's what he's proposing to him. So Satan, in this world, all men live solely for themselves. That is how men live now, and not for the things of God. And that is the essence of sin, is it not? Selfishness. So at this point, Peter is just wanting to see in his life, he's just wanting to see what he can gain from following Jesus. He's wanting the power and blessings to be restored to Israel. And he's wanting to be one of the top dogs in Jesus' government when he sets it up because he sees it coming. This is the Messiah, the son of David, the one that's going to rule as king of Israel. He knew the promises. And that's one of the great positions one of the great schemes that the devil does puts men in positions where they have to choose between God and their possessions, their family, their career, their lust, or their lives. And he knows they are going to choose their interest every time. Every man has done it for all that time except by the grace of God. Because men savor or set their minds and attach them on to the things of men in the world and not of God. And that is why, because Jesus knows that he tempts him that way, he's going to tempt all of us in the same way. And that's why he gives that warning in verses 25 to 27, for whosoever will save his life and whosoever will lose it and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world 
and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Because he knows that Satan is going to be seducing us, if you're a true Christian, to love your life more than God. Because that's the way the whole world lives and operates, and that is why the whole world is heading to hell. And that was the test for Job. So we're talking about the devil's schemes and devices and how he operates. And the Lord said this about Job. He says, the devil appears before him. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and hates evil. And God is boasting of Job. He's saying, look at this man here. Have you considered this guy? He's perfect. He's upright. He fears me. He has a heart that hates evil. A perfect man in his day is what God said. And he really loves me. He proves it by his obedience. And the devil's answer is, oh, no, that's not true. And that's what he is going to say about all of us because he's going to look at us as being no different and we're a target just like every man on this earth. Oh, no, these people here in Job, he just serves you because it pays. He doesn't really love you or fear you. That's what the devil's answer was. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. And the devil says, but you stretch forth your hand and touch all that he has. And he says, he will curse you to your face, because that is the way I'm able to tempt and deceive and ensnare every other man. It works with all of them, and it'll work with him. And so what does God say? He doesn't say he's going to do it. He says he's in your hand, devil. Because the devil's the source of everything that happened to Job. Directly and God indirectly. So his accusation is, hey, you take away Job's abundant life. You take his children that he's been promised away from him. If his wife turns on him because of his faith and his health is taken, Job will curse you to your face. And that's the temptation he's going to put in all of our ways. At some point, God, is this the way you treat me? All these promises, is this the way this all works? Then blankety blank. And that's why Satan would say that, because it's worked in the lives of millions and others and been successful, because that is how he tempted Eve, isn't it? And he says, you don't have to deny yourself. You don't have to deny yourself this fruit and obey God. Take of it. He's telling her there's freedom in the flesh that God's trying to not deny you. That's what Satan's temptation is all about. And I would say, what could Satan tell God that you wouldn't give up and still serve him? Your family, your house, your health, your career? Or what can he throw in your path that would cause you to just take your cross and cast it aside and follow him? Because some people, that's all he does. He just puts something in their path. Because he knows, I'm not, they won't deny themselves. They will take the world before they'll take God. And so he'll throw pornography, money, the great God entertainment, sports, electronic devices, and the pleasures of life. You think he's not using these things now in this world with Christians to get us to not deny ourselves, to not take up our cross, and to not walk with the Lord? 
We got to be aware of that. It's worked for all these years, and it's still, he's saying, it'll work on these people too. And it does on some, doesn't it? We see them fall away. It's worked in our own lives more than we would care to admit. And that's what he's after. He's after us getting off the path of the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his devices. That is what he's after. Because if he can get us off that path, we'll be like Demas, forsaken the Lord because we loved this present world. And like I said last week, he's not in any hurry. He can just get circumstances to a point, and he knows they'll just fall like dominoes. Not in a hurry. He wiped out all of mankind. You think about this. This is what encourages the devil to come at people and come at us. He wiped out the entire world, three to four billion people on this earth, except for eight and it said, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And how did he do that? By convincing them that they did not have to serve God. If it didn't pay, they didn't have to serve God. And what was Noah doing for 120 years on this earth? It says he was a preacher of righteousness. He's saying righteousness means the right way to live before God. He's warning these people. All this occult involvement, all this crazy Sex with angels they were having and all this murder and violence, all these crazy things going on. He's saying, you can't live that way. Judgment's coming. God will judge you. And they mocked him. Oh, no, nothing's happened. The sun's still shining. What's this rain you're talking about in judgment? We've never seen anything like that, Noah. We don't have to listen to you. And the devil blinded them, didn't he? And he's doing it today in Christian circles. It's called making grace a license to sin. It's just he's crafty enough, he packages it in Christian ministers and tells people, hey, once you're saved, you're always saved. It doesn't matter how you live. There's a big grace movement going on. You can't lose your salvation no matter what you do. And he has degrees of that. A license to sin. And that's what the devil did. He blinded the whole earth except for eight. And said, you can follow your lust and desires and still live. God's blessings will somehow keep flowing. And they're telling like us, Noah, deny ourselves and pick up a cross and follow the Lord. Deny ourselves all these pleasures that we just give ourselves over to. We're not going to do that. You're crazy. God is not going to judge us. You've been telling us that for 120 years and we're all doing great. Until... My brother Hamilton, I always liked the way he said, that first raindrop hits their head. And that had to be instant terror in their hearts. Whoops, I made a mistake. And their conscience is telling them, you made a big mistake. And the door shuts and they can't get in. So I'm saying, who had the correct theology in that day? It wasn't the majority. It was definitely the few that were on the narrow path. The majority of Americans at one point, I don't know about today, would say they were Christians. And I'm thinking, but then who is the one watching all these R-rated movies filled with sex and violence and whatever? All that? Who's the one paying to do that? All the heathens? I don't think so. So he's trying to get us off the path is my point. And he's pretty crafty about doing it. And he'll do it in religious jargon. He doesn't care. Well, I want to look at two ways of his schemes and wiles to get us off that path today. And the first one is this, that we got to understand the spirit. So we're saying there's spirits working against us. The spirit of Christianity, and listen to it, is service to God and to others. 
That is what the Holy Spirit inspires. That was the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how, when you read the Gospels, our spirit led. So Jesus was fully a man dependent on the Holy Spirit entirely, just like we are. And his entire ministry was one of service. And doesn't it say in Peter that he is our example and that we are to follow in his steps? And people don't like to hear that. This is not going to be one of the bigger selling tapes, right? But it's the truth. Because he said this, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. He did not come to be ministered unto, but to minister. That is what the Holy Spirit inspires. Not self-indulgence, not to be, oh, I need to be ministered unto. That's what church is for me, to be ministered unto, but to minister. And his message, like I said, it is to follow in his steps because he says this, Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. You want to be great in the church? You want to meet your obligations and be great in God's eyes? Come here to be a minister. And whosoever will be chiefest shall be servant of all. Now, those aren't my words. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. And guess what else the Lord Jesus Christ said? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we really believe that? It's more blessed to give than to receive. So listen, we're part of a family, a body here. And we need to have the attitude when we come in here, all of us, you say you're a Christian of service to one another. Because that is part of taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following Jesus. But listen, the devil is going to fight that with his schemes in this church tooth and toenail. Believe me, he will. And he will bring all his schemes and subtly to cause our church here, instead of having unity, to have divisions, envying, and strife. Now, where did I get those three words from? Because I got a problem with somebody here? No, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 that was going on there. So where do you think envying, strife, and disunity come from? Divisions, not God, spirits, his schemes. He's trying to tear a church apart. And that's how he works through those kinds of spirits. So I would say of all places, I think what we're reading here in Ephesians 6, that we need to put on the armor, and our attitude towards Jesus applies here more than almost anywhere else, doesn't it? Don't we need to take it heed in that? Because don't you think Satan would muster all his wicked spiritual forces to destroy a church first and foremost? You get rid of that, and what do the individuals have, right? So why would Jesus have to say the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? He's talking about the church there. If the gates of hell are not attacking it and coming after it and wanting to destroy it, and he'll do it through subtlety. He doesn't care how. So we're not like the churches over there in Asia and the Middle East. They're being attacked with guns and knives and that way trying to break them up. He'll do that too. 
but he doesn't mind. He'll tear you up from the outside or from the inside through his spirits. Gladly he'll do that. So it was under fierce attacks. And it just says, Jesus said, the church of Jesus Christ will stand, but there are smoldering ruins everywhere of churches that didn't resist him. So here's what we need to think about here. Being a servant to others, what does that require? Sacrifice, time, resources, and prayer. To be a servant to others, sacrifice, time, resources, and prayer, and the devil will send his spirits to talk you out of all of it. Trust me, he will. And they work. How do they work? They come when you think about, I'm going to pray for this person. They come as suggestions to your mind. Something else you have to do. Well, that person doesn't really need prayer. They've got faith. And they can stand on their own or however. A million different things. Or, you know, I'm getting ready to pray, but, man, I have not checked this website out today. And next thing you know, you forgot all about it. And here's somebody who really needed prayer you're going to pray for. He's got all these schemes to get us out of serving each other, doesn't he? Anytime you think, well, I'm going to go call this person up, well, man, that's going to take this much time out of my day, and if I do that, how am I going to get to... That's the way it works. And he'll talk you out of it every time. And you end up, it's just a life for yourself. Easy to have happen. He'll talk you out of fellowship. He'll talk you out of going to the prayer meeting. He'll talk you out of doing ministry and showing concern for others because it all comes down to he has his way of suggesting to your mind, you've got your life. You got a life to live, you got a family, you got things you got. You don't have time for all these other people and things and ministry. But we get back to what did he say? The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. That is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's my point Satan tried to talk our Lord out of carrying his cross, didn't he? And we're saying, life in this church, it's a matter of carrying the cross. It is, dealing with each other, whether we want to admit it or not. It comes down to that a lot of times. And he made it a point, the devil is trying to talk the Lord out of carrying his cross. And the Bible says we are not greater than our Lord. So you think he's not going to come to us with all his schemes and wiles and devices and give us good, logical, reasonable reasons that we don't have to minister to others, that we can just live a life of our own by ourselves? He's going to do all he can to talk us out of having ministry to others. So turn over to Romans 12, if you would, please. Romans 12, beginning in verse 4. It says, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one, we are all members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, service, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaching, or he that exhorts on exhortation, he that gives, let him do it with simplicity, he that rules with diligence, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Hypocrisy, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Man, that's a lot of crosstalk in there. 
not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one to another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate, and be not wise in your own conceit. And I'm saying, when you make up your mind that you're going to put that into practice, you've got a war on your hands. Because you're going to have all kinds of spirits trying to talk you out of everything that we just read. If we are a member of this church, doing those things for each other, the other members of this church, is what God requires of us. Once again, I didn't write this. He's the one that said that. And I'm saying the devil will do his best to make sure we're not taking up our cross. Just like he did the Lord Jesus. Everyone else can be the ones doing ministry. You are the exception. You don't have to do that. No, I don't read that there. We are members one of another. The hard part is you come here and, man, a lot of people don't share a lot of things. Nobody seems to operate the gifts of 1 Corinthians 12. And who wants to be the first one? But you've been praying during the week and God gives you something to share. And you know, you just one of those times, you know it is. This just isn't me having some idea. And you're prompted to share it. And that's when the battle starts. Then you got the devil telling you why you shouldn't. And all these reasons why. And God's trying to encourage you too. And there's a war that goes on. Doesn't it? Or the anointing comes on you. I had this happen one time. I was in a big crowd and... I hadn't been saved that long, and the Spirit of God came on me and gave me a prophecy, and I'm like, I can't do this in front of all these people, and I talked myself out of it. The devil talked me out of it, and next thing you know, the guy's message, it was, that was what his message was, and I'm like, wow, I missed it, but it's, a, it's fear. It's a spirit that's coming at you, and so we've got to let our love for the Lord and our commitment to him and our commitment to others, we've got to overcome that. And be strong in the power of his might. He gives you something to share. Or you get this thought, I want to go encourage his brother. I can see they're having a hard time. And you may be the only one that sees that. And God's saying, go speak to them. Help them out. And the devil says, ah, you, you wouldn't know what to say to them. And they don't even have a friendly look on their face. Why do you want to go talk to them? He'll talk you out of it. That's the way it works. Spirits don't come and manifest themselves. They come as suggestions in your mind. That's how they work, in case you don't know. So I want to look at one other way. It's something to think about. Put it in your proverbial spiritual pipe and smoke it. <laughs> we need to think about we have an obligation to serve one another in this church. That is the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And any spirit that is telling you you don't have to do that is not of God. It's the devil. <laughs> I don't know how much more clear I can make it than what I all just said. Go back and listen to the tape. Can I say that? I don't, I've never said that before. I don't care if you listen to the tape. Just listen to the word. Go back and read Romans 12. You'll be good. And take it to heart. Amen. But another way I want to talk about today that he seduces us to not pick up our cross, and I alluded to it just a second ago, is through fear. And fear is a spirit. And not only that, it is a strong spirit. A very strong spirit. And it can only be resisted in the power of God. Believe me. 
So if you would turn to 2 Timothy 2, verses 7 and 8. And it says this, For God has not given us what? The spirit of fear. But the spirit he's given us is of power and of love and of a sound mind. And he writes to Timothy, verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And that word for fear is not phobos, phobia, which is your typical word for fear. That word for fear that he uses here is a word for cowardice, for cowards. And he says, God has not given us the spirit of a coward. You know what a coward is? A coward is somebody that sees something hard to do or whatever, and they just won't do it. They shrink back. They're timid. They won't step out and give what God has given them to do. And he's saying that spirit that is like that didn't come from God. So where did it come from? <laughs> There's only two sources, the devil. So he's telling Timothy, hey, to give in to that spirit, you are not picking up your cross and suffering for the name of Christ. And that's why he says that. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You can't be that way, Mr. Timothy. Nor of me, his prisoner. You can't be ashamed of me. He said, but you have to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. In other words, you need to stand up and not be ashamed of the name of Jesus when you're in front of the world. Because it's going to be uncomfortable. He says, you've got to speak boldly for his name. And people think they don't have to do that. I'm a Christian. I don't have to do that. Well, what did he just write to Timothy? Is he like the exception? To the case, you're telling yourself, well, you know, I've always been a timid soul. I don't know how to deal with that, how to overcome that. And the answer is found at the end of verse 8. How did he tell Timothy to do it? According to what we've been talking about in Ephesians 6. You overcome that according to the power of God. Amen? Amen. All right. So if you would turn to Matthew 10, because my question then is, do we have an option in being a bold witness for our Lord Jesus Christ? Do we really have an option? And I think in a lot of people's mind, it is an option. And so when we look at Matthew 10, we'll look in verse 16, and we'll skip through a few verses here. But Jesus says this, tells his disciples, Behold, Matthew 10, 16, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And why? Because down in verse 22, he says, You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. And he says in verse 24, The disciple is not above his master, and the servant is not above his Lord. In other words, you will be persecuted because I was. And he goes on in verse 26 and says what? Fear them not, therefore... For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, nothing hid that shall not be known. And then look over in verse 28. He says it again. And fear not them. Fear not. He says it three times in here. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, here he is again, fear ye not, therefore. 
Why? Because God cares about you. You are of more value than many sparrows. And so, moving on, do we have an option? Taking a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 32, whosoever, that's all of us, therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And he that loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And here it is again, he that takes not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. So I would say that those words right there that our Lord spoke are pretty rough for an individual that is shy and fearful and insecure, right? But that is part of counting the cost of following our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it? I happened to read that when I was a teenager before I got saved. And that scared the daylights out of me. Because I realized, I mean, I'd seen guys witness on the streets. I knew how Billy Graham was. I'd seen how Jesus freaks were. And I knew how me and my friends treated and looked at those people. And that was a big deal for me. Man, I mean, I cared so much about what people thought trying to fit in. I was so full of fear, a spirit of fear of what people thought that that was the major hurdle for me to get over to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to get me to a point to where I said, okay, I don't care how big a fool I appear in other people's eyes. I'm willing to follow you no matter what. If that's the price, Lord, I will pay it. Just give me the grace to do it. But we can't say, well, no, that's for other people. I can just blend in. As they used to say, be a secret service Christian. That guy had that song, you'll be a secret service Christian, I'm going to blow the cover on your religion. <laughs> one of the members of this church at one day. So that's a huge hurdle for some people. Because the spirit of fear will tell you, you can't do that. Open your mouth for the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be unpopular and it fills you with terror and dread. But as I said, how did Paul tell Timothy? He said, that's not the spirit God has given you. He's given you a spirit of power. And you can overcome this temptation to give in to cowardice through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Spirit. And that is where, praise God, for us, the baptism of the Holy Spirit should make a difference. It did in my life. It really did. So the fact that I could go out and witness and do things like that, it wasn't because I didn't have to resist the spirit of fear that had gripped me and my mother came down through my mother all of my life. I watched her, scared to death of people, couldn't take a stand on anything. And I thought, I've got that same problem. This is before I became a Christian. I realized that. And when I became a Christian, I'm like, I can't use that and hide behind that in these feelings that come over me when it comes time to talk about the Lord with somebody. You can't hide behind that. You've got to trust God. You've got to venture out. You can't give in to that spirit. You have to say, that is not the spirit God has given me. He's given me a spirit of power. 
and through his power, I can endure whatever afflictions. And you know what you end up finding out? That all these things you think how people are going to react, they hardly ever do. Hardly anybody's going to nail you to a cross because you just talked to them about Jesus. No, most of them are like, well, thank you. You find that out. But fear will tell you, oh, no, they are going to be spitting at you and vehemently and cussing you out and all that. That's what the spirit of fear tells you and grips you. But we have, through this, the power, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to walk in God's will and overcome a spirit of fear. And that is the change that took place in Peter's life. Because Jesus told him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. And how did he sift him? How did he do it? Through a spirit of fear, confronted by two little girls in a crowd. These little girls got him to give in, a spirit of fear, sifting Peter, giving in to that. And all the change that took place, though, because fear is a sin. Peter wept bitterly. He had to repent. But then on the day of Pentecost, what was the change that took place in that man? He was equipped, and he wasn't the same. Because instead of giving into that spirit of fear, oh, no, from there on out on the day of Pentecost, he is speaking boldly in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, if you will yield to that spirit and venture out, and step out and open your mouth, you'll find that God is there to meet you with his power. You don't have to give in to that. So fear caused Peter to drop his cross and kick it aside, didn't it? He denied his Lord. But he overcame that, like I said, through the power of the Spirit. The devil, not just through that way, he'll manifest himself through others to produce fear in your life and cause people to sin. Loved ones will tell you that you are crazy to trust the Lord alone. You think that's God-inspired advice? They'll try to put fear in your heart by pointing out the sure results you're going to get if you don't trust in man like everybody else. Don't be a fool. They'll tell you you'll die. And spirits are working many times through well-intentioned family and friends, just like Peter was. That's how the devil works, through people. So he'll do all he can. He'll work through your friends, your family, give you thoughts to keep you from carrying that cross. And that's how he produces fear. So if you would turn to this, if you don't mind, over to Nehemiah 6. I think this is worth seeing. And here's an account of how the devil works. So find First and Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah is right after that towards the Old Testament. Nehemiah 6. So up to this point, the king of Persia has sent Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And after quite a struggle with enemies trying to get him to stop, Nehemiah at this point in chapter 6 completed the walls of Jerusalem. But two of the devil's henchmen... Sanballat and Tobiah, they are not happy, and they are trying to put fear in Nehemiah and cause him to quit doing the will of God and to sin. And so Nehemiah 6, beginning in verse 6, it says this, wherein it was written, it is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews, you think to rebel, for which cause thou build the wall. That's why you're building the wall, he's telling him, so you can rebel, that you may be their king, According to these words. So he's accusing Nehemiah of building the walls and the Jews are going to rebel and Nehemiah is going to be named the king. 
And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. And now it shall be reported to the king. He said, We're going to tell the king on you, Nehemiah, according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. And then I sent unto him, Nehemiah is writing here, saying, There are no such things done as you say, but you're making all this up. Thou feignest them out of thine own heart. Verse 9, For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it be not done. And he says, and he prays, Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And listen to this, then afterwards, so there's one case there where he's trying to put fear in his heart. Verse 10, Afterward I came unto the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, and the son of Mehetabil, who was shut up. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to kill you, to slay you. In the night they will come to kill you. And Nehemiah says, And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? He says, I will not go in. And look at verse 12. Here is why. He says, For lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. Verse 13. Therefore he was hired. Why? That I should be afraid and do so. And what? Sin. Whenever fear causes you not to do the will of God, it is a sin. Not just a problem. A problem too, but a sin. And that they might have matter for an evil report that they might reproach me. So what's he saying there in verse 12? He says, I perceive that God hadn't sent him. So the Shemaiah was operating by an evil spirit, not the spirit of God. He says, God hasn't sent him. God didn't send him to me. And he said, this man prophesied against me. And who inspired the prophet to put that fear in him? Remember last week, we said the false prophets of Ahab. What happened to them? They had lying spirits come into their mouths and speak through them. Did they not? And so from Ahab's side, he's hearing these prophets speak with their voices, but we know we got to see behind the veil these were spirits speaking through these prophets. And that's what we have here. Spirits speaking through men to cause fear. And Nehemiah says, not only fear, but you're going to keep me from doing the will of God, and then I will sin. And he says, I am not giving in to that. Pray the first time for God to give him strength to come against this fear. He's a man, just like us. So you decide to take a stand and you see in the word that God promises to heal me, to provide my needs, to give me boldness, to witness. You want to manifest the gift of the spirit to edify the church. God wants to get you out of your comfort zone and to fellowship with other people. That's when those spirits of fear will attack you, especially if you're a naturally shy and fearful person. But when you clearly see the will of God, go back and read Romans 12. Read the promises. All of that. When you decide to follow the will of God because you've seen it and pick up your cross and deny yourself and wholly follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that is when the devil is going to send well-meaning and some not-so-well-meaning friends across your path. Just like he did Peter to Jesus. Far be it from you, they'll tell you. This shall not happen to you. 
Trusting God is going to get you killed like it did Jesus. Isn't that what Peter said? You shouldn't have to suffer for the Lord. And he said, you're an offense to me. You're trying to keep me from doing the will of God. And that's what Nehemiah said, through your fear. Trying to put fear in your heart. And what is the Bible's answer to fear and being motivated by that? Especially a fear that comes from men. Proverbs 29, 25 says this. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Have we forgotten that one? We used to quote that a lot. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And the Bible says, if you trust in the Lord and your conscience is clear, you will be safe. The devil says, if you trust in the Lord, you will have trouble and bad results. It produces fear, and it's a strong spirit. But it gets down to what? Whose word are we going to trust? Isn't it? Doesn't it get down to that? Whose word are we going to trust? So we need to remember, the battle, as I said earlier on, is not ours. Who's the battle? The battle is the Lord's. We're fighting for him. The Lord Jesus Christ is our captain. We're part of his army. He supplied us with the armor we need, but we need to put it on for it to work. He's also given us the power to use that armor. His Holy Spirit and a heavenly host. We're not alone, as I said. God will give us the victory because his honor and his glory are at stake in our lives if we're Christians and bearing his name. Well, listen, the enemy is not some old, toothless polecat. He's a brilliant fighter and schemer with wiles, craftiness, and subtlety. And when we take a stand against him and his work in our lives, we are in for a fierce struggle. It's a life and death. I can't say that with enough explanation. We are in a life and death wrestling match. If your name is Christian, life and death, and the whole armor of God and his power is the only thing that's going to get us through, the only thing that's going to give us the victory. And the one thing he's after, the number one thing with us in this room is to get us off the path of the cross and follow in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he wants us to just take our cross and cast it aside and embrace the world. And then who do we become like? Demas. He forsook me, Paul said, having loved this present world. Didn't want to carry that cross anymore. Had enough of the suffering being on that mission trail. So he does that by telling us that lives of service are not a requirement but an option. And he'll give us every excuse through his spirits not to minister to others. So by his spiritual forces also he will work through us if he can not to. The devil's goal is not to build up the body of Christ, but he will work through people here if they are willing accomplices to do what? To destroy it through envy, through strife, through divisions, through gossip, through all of that stuff. That's how it works, and we need to recognize that and not be a tool in his hands, don't we? So listen, I'm telling you, you take for granted churches that you have and that you're a part of, and I'm saying you don't appreciate something until it's no longer there and the people you're around. I was a part of one of those up in Columbus, Ohio. We had a great church, and the devil moved in there, and a lot of young saints, and it was destroyed. And we had a lot of good fellowship there, and just a lot of good things happening there, and there's nothing there now. 
And that's why I'm here. That's why I moved down here. So believe me, when you don't have something, take it for granted. You think there's something. I'm telling you. But we said lastly, we're saying the way he'll try to get us off that path is through a spirit of fear. It's a strong, it's a strong spirit. And overcoming fear is not willpower. It's not saying, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. That's not how it works. It isn't. It's by trusting God that I'm going to venture out. I may feel afraid, but I'm going to venture out and trust that his power and his spirit will now work through me and that I will be delivered to this spirit. I don't have to walk around by my willpower telling I'm, a, I'm scared to death, but I'm really not. No, you, he will deliver you from that spirit and its effects and its feelings. God is faithful because he says you shall know the truth and the truth will do what? Make you free, not leave you bound to spirits all your life. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. So, amen. Well, let's go back to Ephesians. The last thing I want to do, I want to read this one more time. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, and we'll close with that. He says this, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness forces in heavenly places. Wherefore, Paul says, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And we're going to do that in this church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and that through your word we can understand how the devil operates and his methods and his methods of bringing division, envy, and strife, and his methods of putting fear in our lives to keep us from doing your will. But I just ask, Lord, that you'll put it in all of our hearts here to know that the fear of man does nothing but bring a snare, but that we can know, Lord, your faithfulness, that whosoever trusts in you shall be safe. And we just thank you for that word. And I just ask that you'll make this word real to every heart in this room today. And I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen.